Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. So you retweeted Bobani Jones, which is a big... Yes. You, you don't even follow Bomani, right? No, no, we, I don't. We have this in common because we yeah. both like Bomani and think it's he's just, rather annoying on Twitter. Yeah, it's it's more that he picks fights and then gets upset that people are in fights with him. Yeah. You, you know, it's like, dude, you're the one who jumped in the muck. Like, you can't be mad about getting dirty now. And so he's just exhausting, and I have no time for that. I, I mean, That's there's like, really only – yeah. I think he's a. I think he's jumped ship on it now, mostly. But Kirk Herbstreit for a while there would like reply to all the idiots that wrote him back, and I was like, yeah, Kirk, what? dude, like you're you're on a multi million dollar franchise, like just and fucking ignore them. Also, can you imagine how many replies he gets? Yeah, <laughs> Kirk Herbstreit getting like a hundred replies to anything he's saying, anything, and I'm talking even you know yeah, if he just tweeted shit. out. Yeah, like, uh, if you're ever in Baton Rouge, go to walk-ons. <laughs> yeah, 150 replies. Yeah, piece of shit, walk-ons is, you know, <laughs> yeah, fake. Yeah, that place. <laughs> Who would go to Baton Rouge? It sucks. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, exactly. Roll Tide. He'll reply yeah. to each one of them. You're like, dude. <laughs> it's like, that's a bad, bad decision, man. Like, No, I forgot who said it today, but it's just, like, Twitter is what you get out of it. Like, if you go in picking fights every day, you're going to be angry. Yeah. Like, look look for the jokes, you know. And I'm not, you know, look, I'm not saying I don't enjoy tweaking Jake because he is just ridiculously easy. Um, but, you know, other than that, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, you always play it cool. Yeah, like, though, uh, uh, Pod... Had a thing where it's just we, he was just like he uh, said that we were. Uh, I, I forgot what I said, but uh, he said, oh, you know, because you know Jake and I went at it, and I really only tweeted one thing at him, and uh, Jake went off, and then uh, Pod retweeted and said, you know, now starting at WrestleMania, and at that point I'd already gone to bed, so I have the ultimate finishing move, which is, you know, say one thing and nap. So when I become a wrestler, I'm the dad. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, Jake. Jake is a character. Yeah, he's he, he's going off on some wrestling guy tonight. Oh, typical. Yeah, now some there's that writer he hates. I don't know. It's Dave. Oh, Dave follow. Meltzer. I know nothing about. Yeah, I don't even know his last name, but I know he's. I know he's obsessed with him, and he talks about him all the time. I'm trying uh, to think of like an equivalent of Dave Meltzer to help make an analogy for you to understand. Is he like Clay Travis? No, no, no. Um, who is someone in like modern sports media that once upon a time was like a giant and just like sort of towered over the industry or like, you know, created a new path in the industry? Honestly, Mel now, Kuiper. Huh? Mel Kuyper. Yeah. No, that, that's a pretty good analogy, but now it's kind of out of date, They're like out of yeah. touch with things. That's who this guy is. Yeah, that'd, and that'd I'm be just Mel like, it's like, I mean, he's not out of touch in the sense like he knows what's going on. Like, yeah, Mel Kuyper knows what's going on, but it's like his views and opinions are just kind of what 20 they years are. out of date. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's I mean, like, yeah. Like, get Kuiper over it. 
Kuiper invented the industry, like the, yeah. the draft. Like that's what this guy is. And and I know people have passed him by, and you get better analysis. But I do feel bad when people like take him, you know, take him out to beat him up like a pinata. I'm kind of like, dude, the reason your whole little niche exists is because of Mel Kuyper. Yeah, exactly. At at least, you know, tip the hat a little bit, be a little bit nice, you know, be a little bit nicer to the guy. I mean, I know I don't read his draft profiles either anymore. So I'm not saying he's still with it, but you know, he, he is a trailblazer. He invented this crap. Yeah. That's what, that's my take on it is like, I, Dave Meltzer, I follow him on Twitter. He's a little bit annoying because he, too, caves to, like, people that try to fight with him. And I'm just like, he was a trailblazer. He covered wrestling in a way that no one ever had done it before or after. And he basically set up this whole world where you get to now follow wrestling journalism. So get over it. Like, what the fuck? He's not that bad of a dude. So. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I just know he hates them. So I, I've yeah. been, it's it, it's been polluting my feed. It keeps going in there, and I like I don't want I don't mute anything, which I that is a problem. I do. Yeah, I don't mute, and I should I should mute terms, but every yeah. so often, like I don't know, like I I don't want to mute wrestling because like it might that's a word and people might use it for something else. And yeah, yeah. It's, like it's th- this person's wrestling with this issue and I don't want to miss that. Well, I mean, I guess I could, but you know what I mean? Like, and I'm also a big fan of, you know, the only solution to bad speech is more speech. I- I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. So I'm willing to put up with people's goofy WWE shit. And also <laughs> like, uh, look, and I like the fact that you like it, and you know, and when Pod or Billy you know, goes on one of their uh, Ric Flair things, dude, I'm down with Ric Flair. I'm not, you know, I'm not a total yeah. truck, you know. So, yeah, but sometimes like it just becomes. Some of I, I, yeah, they get so caught up in all the mechanics of it. I'm just like, it's a fucking scripted dance like just yeah have fun with it when it sucks just ignore it (laughs) yeah uh, it's uh, it's like it's like live tweeting a sitcom yeah yeah that's a good way to put it and i'm like guys you don't need to you know tweet out every episode of friends or you know we get it and i don't know it's i like that people like it i'm not here to i'm i'm not the fun police you know i'm not gonna say that whatever you like you shouldn't like you know i i hate the the thing you like is actually bad. But I will say for a goofing thing to like, wrestling has a death toll. And that that's definitely for my weird, you know, uh, guilty pleasure. I like for it not to leave a trail of dead bodies. Yeah, that's always kind of been your stance against it. Yeah, it, it, it does make me feel icky. I think it's improving, but I guess we don't really know yet. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to we have to wait thirty years. But then yeah, look, look yeah. the NFL kills the NFL kills people. So, and I I enjoy the hell out of football. <laughs> and with that, welcome to the Sneaky Good Podcast. That's <laughs> <laughs> what we do here. <laughs> we like killing people. <laughs> this is a murder game. podcast now. <laughs> oh my god, my wife would eat that up. Oh, oh does she listen? Does, does she do a, podcasts too? No, she doesn't do podcasts, but she's a murderino. Well, I mean, does she listen to them? Oh, yeah. She listens to the murder podcast. I, f- I forget what it's. It's like my favorite murder or whatever. Yeah, the murder we Yeah, she's yeah, she's she's a groupie on that. She's a big fan. It's, a, uh, she's, it's funny because there's probably about a billion like murder sort of whodunit podcasts now. 
Like, it, yes. it, serial kind of made it a. So I know serial it, was a little different because it was sort of legal. One murder. No, she likes the you know. Every week, let's do a different murder. No, they they did a live show in, in Dallas, and she went to it. Oh, that's cool. She took, and you know, they were they were all into it. You know, they they exchanged their murderino stories, and uh, I don't. Yeah, it's weird because like my wife doesn't is not the she's not making me watch figure skating. She makes me watch like shows about prison <laughs> and like serial killer stuff. And I'm like, oh man, can't we watch something light? <laughs> Your wife and my wife have that in common. They love like my wife loves like Dateline and all that sort of stuff. Oh yeah. Oh no, my wife is always looking for like the goriest, most horrifying documentary on Netflix. <laughs> And, yeah, and, and it, it keeps me up at night. I'm not going to lie. I'm not that oh, hardcore. I mean, Everybody, some uh, st- keep posing your thoughts, your thoughts and prayers. <laughs> exactly. Some of this stuff is disturbing. I'm like, I don't need to know this much about serial killers. Right. Yeah, I, I always tell my-, my wife that I she's plotting my murder. I can tell. Yeah. Well, I figure that the what is it? The girlfriend of the serial killer is always the safest person on earth. You think so? I think I think it works the same way with boyfriends and, and husbands. I'm hoping so. And also, look, you know, women don't kill people. That's also I mean, very true. They do, but not not like serial killer. I mean, no. is there is there a female serial killer? I can't think of one. I thought there was uh, one, uh, like Mary Borden or something. Yeah, but that's a long time ago. Like really, really long ago, Lizzie. Yeah, you know, Lizzie, Lizzie Borden. But that's a spree killing, and she knew them. Uh, like, I, uh, what's her name? Monster. Uh, oh I yeah, mean, yeah. Yeah, you're right, Eileen. Yeah, I know. Oh, God, I can't think of her last name. I, yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about, though. Yeah, the, the Charlie Theron movie that's based on a true story. Okay, so there's one. I'm looking up a list. Wer- oh, Eileen Wernos. Yes. Myra Henley. Never heard of her. Yeah, I, I, I'm not gonna know it by name. I, I have to. I know by event. <laughs> yeah, a lot of these are pretty old. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I'm sure they did a lot of killing back in the 1800s where they just got sick of our shit. <laughs> that, was, that was the original Me Too movement. <laughs> I must kill everybody. <laughs> a lot of uh, okay. There's a, there's a few. Mm. I'm not going to rattle off this whole list. <clears throat> as you can tell tonight, as I choke to death. Hang on. She got you already. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I switched to wine tonight instead of beer. Whoa. I went down the wrong, wrong pipe. Total death. Hang on. <coughs> this podcast is brought to you by beer. <coughs> yeah. Drink beer, not wine. Yeah, wine will kill you. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm still having problems. Hang on. We're going to have to edit this part out. Or this is the funniest part of the podcast. Oh, I'm leaving this in. This oh, is- it's good. I'm glad to... This high quality entertainment that they demand of us. Yes, yeah, someone at home is like choked to death. I, I knew it. <laughs> I had February twenty second in my death pool. <laughs> <clears throat> it's the absolute worst when something goes down the wrong pipe because it doesn't yeah. feel like there's any recovery. Yeah, I'm just waiting uh, until it finally clears off. And you're like, yeah. oh, okay. You just sit there, and also it's wine, so it burns. <laughs> <laughs> Hey 
Ugh. As you can tell tonight, we have no agenda, which is good. I, I feel like we can just kind of hang out and talk LSU sports and not in a like radio show kind of way. No, this is uh, at the next hour. Why LSU football is failing? Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We want your calls. Call five five five. You suck. Um, <clears throat> this is actually like a really fun time of year. I, I enjoy. You know, we just gotten through signing day, so there's that. The, normally, there's that hopeful feeling of you know the the renewal of the team and all that kind of stuff. There, there's a little bit of negativity this year, but I'm not. We already went over. I'm not. I'm not that down on the class. But basketball still has a slim shot of making the tournament. Great season, regardless. Yeah, I mean, just an amazing. You know, the gymnastics team is you know the best team on campus. Yeah. Um, Turning it on at the right time. The women's if, basketball. If that team, is a thing. No, I think it is. Um, and I, look, that's a lot like what the baseball team does. The you know. Uh, Manieri is really good at tinkering with lineups early in the year. And you're seeing it now. And, you know, we already have our first tweets at us to, uh, you know, fire the coach, which is good. First weekend, people are already hitting the panic button. <laughs> yeah, I thought but, Z. Rao had a good tweet about that saying, like, oh, this is that time of year when Manieri changes the lineup every every week and we're going to drop, like, a midweek series and then we're going to start smoking people in, in March. <laughs> Yeah, and I think he said, like, some guy that you never expect is going to step yeah, up and it. become one of our stars. And, yeah, that's how it goes. Um, look, the Notre Dame series was disappointing, not because we lost, because, I mean, you never want to lose the Notre Dame, because, you know, fuck Notre Dame. But, you know, they won one of three, and it's the opening series. It's not that big of a deal. The real thing that was concerning was just how bad the starting pitching was. Yeah. Um, it, that's a little bit concerning because you know you you lose all three of your starters. You come in a little bit hopeful. You're like, okay, how are these new guys going to do? <laughs> and then you know, there's a lot of a lot of double figures ERA, yeah. ERAs right now on on, our, on the stat sheet. And We're gonna have to be a gorilla ball team again. Yeah, and I, I think the pitching will come around, but it, it's pretty ugly right now. Uh, and you don't want to you don't want to see that. That's <clears throat> you're going to play Texas this weekend. Um, I live in Texas, so I have a few side bets at the office. So I kind of need LSU to do well this weekend. Um, I don't. I actually think Texas is going to take this series. But when you're in an office in Texas and you're known as the LSU fan in the office, you cannot turn down a, a reasonable. You, you can't turn down a reasonable bet. You so don't back down off that. Yeah. So um, unless it's uh, basketball. Yeah, basketball. I think everybody understands. Like, but baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need the Tigers to come through. So I need some pitching this weekend. <laughs> I hope so. We, injuries have been an issue too, huh? Yeah. Um, Zach Watson. Well, first, Josh Smith is out for a month. Um, better now than later, I guess. Um, it's the back, so you never know how someone's going to come back from that. I mean, this could be one of those things that dogs him all year. Uh, But then Zach Watson strained an oblique in batting practice before the uh, UNO game, and they insist that there's nothing to worry about. So I'm sure he'll be totally fine and not play at all this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I think that's the, the thing. It's just like you've lost. We might have lost our two, two of our best hitters. Um, our pitching looks pretty poor right now. The bullpen looks okay, um, but this is a team. And Nick Weber was the guy who was the the star of the scrimmages. I mean, he was just pounding the ball. Up, you know, everyone's tweeting out like his stats. I was leading LSU and everything. And in his first weekend against another team, he goes two for thirteen. So, look, I know it's a very small sample. It's just three games, but come on, two of thirteen. Let's let's do a little bit better. Um, so it's, yeah, right now it's just that everything has kind of gone wrong in the first week. I don't know shit about baseball, so <laughs> I'll trust yeah, so your word for it. It's don't loosely panic. followed on Twitter. How about that? Don't panic just yet. It's it's, it's a long time to the regular season. Yeah, I, so. to, honestly, it's funny you say that. As like a very casual LSU baseball fan, my general impression of LSU baseball season is, oh, it's that time of year where everyone's freaking out again. Oh, okay, we're good again. No, all good. Like that's basically every yeah. season. It's like, <laughs> there's this like few week lull where everyone freaks out and it's like, Oh my God, fire everyone. Yeah. And, and normally still like mid- win the conference. It's normally over midweek games, yes. which look, other teams care more about it than we do. And that's just, you're going to lose games like that. Cause most teams have one good pitcher and they save it for the LSU game. They try and go in, you know, and this is these are guys who wanted to go to LSU. Not all of them, but, you know, a lot of them did didn't get an offer. And now they're going to show it. You know, they're going to show it to us and ram up their ass. You know, you know, you should have recruited me. I get that. That there's plenty of motivation for a Louisiana school to beat the hell out of LSU in the midweek. And LSU on the flip side is playing with lineups. They're clearly not going to use one of their top three starters. Um they're probably not going to use the best pitchers out of the pen. You know, I don't want to say they're sending the B squad, but they're sending the A minus. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to lose games like that. You're, you're not going to. And even if you are clearly better than them, this baseball, you're still only going to win, you know, 60, 70 percent of the time. Yeah. Well, it's college. So 70, 80. But still. Yeah. Baseball is a game you just inherently lose high number of games then I don't know I mean it's always the long stretch in baseball so yeah it's just started you know we were literally one weekend in Texas will give us a good series I need to win I have a lot of beer riding on this you know I have to buy like a case of a beta if we lose this game so oh. it's not doing <clears throat> which abita um it depends on the person uh, you know, because we're betting uh, Texas beer against Louisiana beer. So. Okay. Which Texas beer? Like good one? Um, yeah, because uh, we're going. Uh, it says it's Austin. The rule was it has to be from Austin. Oh, cool. So it's going to be. I think Rabbit Hole for yeah. from one guy, and the other guy uh, said it's not technically from Austin, but he always gets there to the Tejas beer. I was like, okay, I'll accept it because I've never had it, and that sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never had that one. I've had Rabbit Hole. Yeah, Rabbit so. Hole is really good. So. Um, I was just making sure it wasn't Shiner, which Shiner is perfectly fine. But I would be I love, like, yeah, I'm not betting a beat against Shiner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't wager Shiner. It's a fine beer, but it is. I, I, I love Shiner. I drink a lot of Shiner, a lot of Shiner. <laughs> but, 
but yeah, I get it. Like we're not going to go overboard on that. So, you know, but it's a nice thing to have around the office and I need LSU not to let me down. Like, so I'm counting on you guys. When has LSU ever let you down? <laughs> never. LSU has never let me down. Um, and, you know, and that I think will transition. Segue, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> I think we we're into, both thinking the same thing. Into our uh, series that we've just started to write. I don't think it's picked up a whole lot of traction on the site yet, but I don't care because I love it. Can I – some things you write for everybody – some things you write for yourself. This is one of those things I think I'm writing for myself. We're like Hollywood and actors. Was it, was it like three for me, one for you, or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Like this is for me. Like, like yeah, the, this is my small indie picture. You know, it's going to do well at Sundance, <laughs> and that that's our greatest game series that we've just started. Um, the two of us broke. Um, we broke up uh, the last fifty years. LSU sixty years. Sixty. Nineteen fifty. Yeah. So we each took 30 games, and we are currently working our way kind of randomly. I think we each have a schedule. We have broken it up, so we're not going to run into each other. Yeah. Uh, we have a schedule. <clears throat> but we're going through 60 years of LSU football trying to determine the best game from each season. And <clears throat> what have you learned so far? I think that's the best way to say it. I mean – Surely you don't want me to outline like specific facts I've learned. Yeah, so yeah no, I'm talking. Yeah, let's talk like general. Uh, conceptually, it's interesting. I mean, I knew a fair amount because I've written about a Saban season, uh, a Miles season, and a Dietzel season, and a Charlie Mack season. Now, so four different coaches. The program was a distinctly different positions in each of those. Um, I would say that I didn't really realize in 58 when we won the title that we were kind of perpetually thought of as like the team that couldn't get over the hump, um, which was interesting to read from some articles. Um, and then when you get into McClendon, obviously I knew a fair amount about the McClendon era I and mean, it's hard to be an LSU fan and not know something about him. And you and I have talked about him before. And I know you've often compared him to miles, but it was pretty interesting to see sort of just when you look through his record and see like sort of the, I'll use the word maddening. It's probably not the best choice, but like maddening consistency. Cause he was really stable. Yeah. It was just yes. like the same eight, nine wins basically every single season. So I could see why it would be aggravating. He had that, he had that lull in like 74 to 76, like yes. right around there. Which is what I wrote and, about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, I wrote about him coming out of it, but by the time he came out of it, Billy can I didn't know that Billy Cannon had campaigned to get him fired, which was interesting. That I didn't I didn't know that either. It was in Peter uh, Finney's book. Like he just said that like or maybe it was on Wikipedia. No, it was in Finney's book because I've been we, we were both relying on Finney's yeah. book a lot. Let's <laughs> not lie. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, uh, thank you, Peter Finney. <laughs> so it's it's super interesting because it's like Canon is. This is like so. This is going to be like one of the probably the most booed things I've ever said on this podcast. But in reading the fifty, like doing the fifty eight article, and then doing the one about McClendon, I'm kind of like. I'm down on Billy Cannon a little bit. Just as like, yeah. No. First of all, I think 
he wasn't the best player back in you know the, that era. I know he didn't win the Heisman at fifty eight, but there was a better running back on those teams, Jimmy Taylor. Yeah. And oh Jimmy Taylor God. doesn't get near the credit he deserves for being as great of a player as he was. And plus, Jim Taylor has an incredible story, if you ever get into that. But yeah, beyond yeah. that, and then you come back and like he's trying to get McClendon fired. It's kind of just like, this guy kind of sucks. <laughs> Here's the amazing. Jim Taylor is literally a family friend. Oh, really? I mean, not, I mean, we don't, I don't know him well, but he knew right. he knew my dad. Right. And, you know, and so I talked about Billy Cannon and Jim Taylor with my dad when I was at school and he went to LSU and we were going back and forth. And I, as a young college student, suggested that Jim Taylor was better than Billy Cannon. And my dad told me to shut my mouth. <laughs> and he was friends with Jim Taylor. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm not saying they're like best buddies, but like he knew the guy. <laughs> and even he was like, no, Billy Cannon was better. It's just the myth of Billy Cannon is just this, this overwhelming thing. Yeah, and I, I don't like tearing down legends. I like building legends up. Big fan of building legends up. But yeah, Billy Cannon's a guy, and I, we did this a couple years ago when we did you know the best player poll when we got to running backs. I think Billy Cannon might be the most overrated player in LSU history. Yeah, and that's yeah, not I that he's not talking about it's, it. It's not that he's not good. He was very good. Yeah, and, absolutely. But he's this towering figure. He's the guy who has his number retired. You know, he's the only Heisman winner in the program. And yeah, there was a better running back on the same team. And the funny thing with Jim Taylor, and this is what I love, is Jim Taylor would later go to the Green Bay Packers and win Super Bowls there. And he would play with Paul Horning. And Paul Horning is this legendary figure, and he's the guy in the Hall of Fame, and everybody loves Paul Horning. Jim Taylor was better than Paul Horning. (laughs) It happened to Jim Taylor twice (laughs) that he was the better player, but he didn't get the recognition either in college or in the pros. Yeah, I think there's this facet of him that just – I don't know what he was like or is like as a person. He seems like he's just sort of a passive – like, he's just a dude. Yeah. And a nice like, guy. And yeah. He's not the kind of guy who was interested in building up his legend. Yeah. It just, yeah. And he was like a team guy. Like he was just interested in the team winning. That's all he cared about. I think there was an interview with him and he was like, they were like, Jim, you ran for 120 yards. And he's like, I don't really care. We lost. Like yeah. that was basically his answer. It's like, it doesn't matter. We lost. And he actually meant it. Like it yeah. wasn't like, you know, uh, you know, and, uh, cause there were, there was no media training back then. Right. You know, it's not like now where everybody's so media savvy and they're saying the right thing so they don't get killed on Sports Center. There was no Sports Center. <laughs> right. It's also interesting to just see my general takeaway from four seasons of this is that our program, where it is, is sort of not that it hasn't changed our positioning and stuff, but just that like the problems that plagued us in 1958 plague us in 2018. <laughs> like it's the I, same damn problems. I totally agree. I totally agree. Like I, I do think it's funny because people have pointed it out in the comments. Cause I mean, this is a horse I've been on for a decade writing for the site of less miles is Charlie Mack. You know, you yeah. guys don't understand how much like, and it's fun to write about Charlie Mack teams and have people say, wow, this guy's really like Les Miles. <laughs> but what's also funny, what I think is really interesting is so much of it is reputation. It's based in fact. And, you know, and Les Miles earned his reputation as well as – but at the same time, it's not entirely true. Like once you get labeled as a way, 
you know, labeled a certain way, that's just the truth for everybody forever. You know, you're that guy. And it's funny. It's like, you know, you know, McClendon is famous for being, you know, punt, punt, you know, a run, run, pass, punt. Like that's the whole thing. And in the games I've done of him so far, both times he's been pretty radical in the game. I mean, for the time, like he's been this really, because I did 62 and 69, and both times he went against type and, you know, became like this really aggressive player, particularly in 62. And the Cotton Bowl, he threw like 25 passes, which back right. then would be like throwing 40 times today. I mean, like he came out there and, you know, gave it to his quarterback and said, you know, chuck it all over the field. And it's funny for a guy whose reputation is so much, you know, run, run, pass, punt, you know, he gets fired. That wasn't. In, in the biggest games, that actually wasn't what he did. He he did these really aggressive play calls, but no one remembers that. And then when I did 86, which I, I must say 1986 is my all-time favorite LSU season. I've been all over yeah. about Twitter. stuff. I love the 86 team so much. It is LSU to a T. Because as people say, the dream LSU season is winning the national title and firing the coach. This is about as close as you can come. They went to right. the Super Bowl, won, won the SEC, and fired the AD. I mean, it's. <laughs> I mean, we're we're right on the cusp. Um, but what I, what's funny about that team is the '86 team is kind of remembered as like this run and gun, throwing the ball all over the place, scoring tons of points. And they were that team. They did score a ton of points. But in their biggest games, they couldn't move the football. And Tommy Hodson threw a billion interceptions. He was also a freshman, so let's not say that Tommy Hodson sucks. It's just. Yeah, he was he was a freshman going through growing pains, and so the coach realizing that he had you know Arnsbarner realizing that he had a freshman quarterback in those big games kind of you know pulled pulled him back, and they ran the ball and they relied on the defense, which was really good, and you know they threw the ball and you know blew out Mississippi State, you know they threw the ball a ton against Florida, but in you know Bama Notre Dame those are games where they just hung on for dear life with the defense. And yet, you know, from today, if you ask people about those 1980s team, they think wide open offense. You ask them about the 1960s and they think run, 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 run. Yeah, it's super bizarre. Like, too, you're going to criticize, like, because that was the theme in the 76 season I was writing back was he was criticized for his conservative offense. And it's like, he had Terry fucking Rubisky, and then he had Charles Alexander. Like, why would yeah. you not run the ball all the time? I mean, yeah, speaking of guys who are underrated, if if we can do one thing as a site, it is to build Charles Alexander as the true legend of LSU football. That guy was amazing, all right? Charles Alexander was a great running back. He – I don't want to say he now dominates our uh, record book – but his name's in a lot of places, and that goes before him came the legends of Cannon and Taylor, and after him have come Falk and Fournette and Geis, and there's Charles Alexander in the middle of it. That man was awesome. Yeah, I agree. His, uh, his numbers still stand up. It's pretty incredible. I mean, obviously, I guess the biggest attraction people have had is that he had a high volume, but, I mean, he was durable, and he kept going. I think that's a compliment to his. Yeah, like – Health is a skill. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, health is a skill. And people always say, well, you know, it's one thing to like project into the future and say, well, this guy's been used a lot, so he's going to decline. Okay, that's a fair criticism. 
But once it's happened, you can say, and someone will say, well, he just got used a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> he held up. Like at that point, it becomes a positive. I know that's it's a weird distinction that we tend to evaluate players based on their future value. And when we look back on a player, we tend not to give them credit for not declining or for, you know, doing what, you know, doing whatever they did. Um, it's it's sort of like in you know baseball postseason at bats matter more. I'm sorry, they do. Now you can argue all you want that you know there is no such thing as a guy who's better in the postseason, but some guys by luck of the draw or whatever have better postseason numbers. They get mm-hmm. credit for that because it mattered, and I think that's what's cool about building up a player is to say this guy was great in this game. And, you know, I think that's, you know, for me, it was like Greg Jackson in 1986. Like, I mean, he was all over. Eric Hill. I mean, was just everywhere in that yeah. game, you know, and that's why he's a legend. Was Eric Hill better than Michael Brooks? No, I don't think you can find an LSU fan from that era who would argue that. That said, in 1986, Eric Hill was the more important player because Michael Brooks got hurt. Yeah. I think the other fascinating part, I think you and I talked about this on Twitter, is how uh, little record there is. It is obviously amazing. obviously not modern era, but I mean modern. I'm saying like from the '90s on, but basically once you hit the '80s, we have stuff. But '70s yeah. and before, there's so little. I think there's about three eras of record keeping. I'm going to say everything between 1979 and before, because we'll cut the line of Charlie Mack and before is one era and the records are just terrible. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. It's, you can find some newspaper clippings. Um, you can dig through the art, you know, the, you know, the archives of the advocate, you can, you know, pay for old articles and stuff. Um, but there isn't just, it's all like myth and rumor, which actually I like better. I'm not going to lie. I love, even it though it does add a spirit to it. It does. It makes it all mystical. And like, it's sort of like the, how the Billy Cannon run, you know, is it's always foggy yeah. <laughs> in the video. Like it, it does make it seem like it's not just from another time, but from another place, you know, that world, everything was in black and white. They even played games in black and white. <laughs> then on to the next era is about 1980 to roughly 95, maybe as late as 96, 97. And I'll call that the, the modern pre-internet era. Mm-hmm. Where you have much better record keeping, um, you start to have a lot of games on TV. You know, ESPN. You know, you'll have you can find stuff on YouTube. They have ESPN archives. Yep. You know, more stuff saved. But again, all of the records were kept offline because, and they digitized some of it, but only a little bit. And you know, the internet didn't explode until like ninety six, ninety seven. I guess is when it really became everybody's using it, and that's when you get modern stuff where you, it's it becomes not finding one thing. It becomes, okay, I found 20 sources. What's the good one to use? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. It it gets overwhelming. Like there's too much, you know, for the modern team and you, you, you know, everything about it. You could find out like their girlfriend if you really wanted to look, you know, find out. Yeah. Like a good example of that was I wrote about year 2000, which was Saban's first year. And I really wanted to get into like who Saban was before he got to LSU well, there's been so much shit written about Saban, just infinite gobs yeah. of articles. That it is, it was hard to find something. You know, it, I honestly spent a few hours looking around, and I eventually found 
I went to the Advocate archives and found something and paid for it because I was like, this, yeah, no, no. this is the best I can do. I mean, and that was what was good about 86. It's like I knew what I was looking for. I was like, I, but I was like, OK, when exactly was he fired? You know, was the AD fired? When did, you know, bottom line, Bob get the axe? So I knew to look for it. But then there was only like three sources that had an article mm-hmm. about it. So it was easy just to choose one. And I knew Sports Illustrated wrote that article, which, God, I love that. And so I just had to find that, you know, I just went to the vault. And yeah. by the way, Sports Illustrated, their old college football stuff. I don't know if you've used it yet. They had a weekly column on college football in the sixties. And I think it went through the nineties where they would just have like a little sum up. And in the sixties, it's great. Cause it's like the South <laughs> and there'll be like four games from the South. They talk about it. And then it'll be the Midwest and it'll just be four games. And it's like, it's this peak of this era that this was how people got their news on college football back then. Yeah, I mean, they they might have heard some on the radio or saw something on TV, but there was there wasn't this wide amount of data or just information. You had to wait a week for a Sports Illustrated to come to your door to find out who won the LSU Ole Miss game. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I think that's you didn't know these teams, and you only learned about it from writers. <clears throat> so you had to have good writers, and this is actually one of my favorite things we've gotten through so far. Is the older the box score, the snarkier the play-by-play. Because box scores on the LSU site will have play-by-play data. And you can tell sometimes they're just pissed to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, if you read a, the full box score, you can start to get the tone of the game. It's really interesting. and that, that doesn't happen today. It's very clinical today. It is, yeah. You know, but they'll be like descriptors and like they'll be like uh, like in a 1974 box score. It'll say something like, you know, Burt Jones throws a bullet, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> the, you know, or, you know, or like, you know, in 86, there was a one line or it's like Mike Shula, you know, <laughs> you know, I forgot what they said, but it was something like, I mean, you know, Mike Shula throws out the back of the end zone, but there was some pejorative term. It was just like, what? The, but it was basically like, what the fuck is he doing? <laughs> <laughs> it was so clear that he had a guy open. He just screwed it up, but they couldn't <laughs> say that in the box score. They had to like, come you know, come up with a way to say it that, you know, you know, fires the ball at the end zone, but it sounded really negative. It's, they were really good at choosing the right word. Yeah. The, when I was doing this, so I did the 76 one, which is, this is really not that long ago, comparatively. And, I mean, there was color photographs of the game. I found one on, on Twitter. Um, but the story of that game was fascinating because, like, every source I read had a different story of how it unfolded. Like, one outline that essentially Nebraska was running up and down the field in the first half but could never really convert other than their first touchdown – and then a second one would be like, well, Nebraska eked out a touchdown on their first drive and then didn't do anything for the rest of the game. And so yeah, it, the, it, 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 and they would be like, oh, they had like 280 yards of offense at halftime. And the other one would be like, no, they had like 112 yards of offense at halftime. <laughs> I was like, what? I don't even remember. And then like the, the, there was a field goal that LSU attempted late. And there's like dispute on whether it was short or if it sailed right. Like no, no one really is- seemed to know. That's the crazy stuff. Like, even in '86, like uh, David Browndike missed a field uh, missed a field goal in uh, um, against Ole Miss. He, mm-hmm. he missed a fifty. I, I know I mentioned it. He missed like a fifty-two yarder. 
<clears throat> I didn't see the game. It wasn't on TV. Or it might have been, but like I don't remember watching it because there was very few games on TV back then. Right. I'm I'm sure I listened to it on radio, but I don't know if it was wide, if it hit a post, if it was short. I have no idea. I just know that he missed a 52, 54 yard field goal. And yeah, I couldn't find. I mean, I didn't really look for it because I wasn't writing about that game because I didn't want to write about us losing to Ole Miss. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's weird how it adds to it. Yeah, and, and it really proves the point that <clears throat> the further you get from the present, the more you get just reduced to the statistical record. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the only thing you truly trust is the box score. Yeah. Because you know, it, was, it was written that night, you know, and, you know, it's the data was put in there. And I'll, I'll believe a game story written, the, you know, next day. But you start getting if you read anything that's like five years later, as people try and remember the game and they talk about it, it's people are so full of shit. <laughs> you know, people just misremember stuff, and you know, it starts getting you start getting these hazy details, and that's when it becomes more mythic. And it's I think it's more interesting once it becomes mythic. But it's funny, like players just become more and more. They get boiled down to a few moments and then a statistical line. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's kind of interesting. It is interesting. You know, you know, like, and like, I, cause, like, with my parents, like, they have nursed a grudge about 1969 pretty much their entire lives. Like, that was, you know, they should have, and if you've talked to any older LSU fan, they will talk about the time that Notre Dame screwed him out of a bowl. Like it is like <clears throat> it is the birth of our inferiority complex. It is it is gorgeous. I, I mean, uh, I love it. I mean, I'm not happy we got screwed, but I, you know, 40 years later, I like that we got screwed because it's it's such a perfect story. And like, you know, you know, my parents still go go on about it. What's funny is, is like, you know. Mike Hillman was the quarterback of that team, and I, I don't know anything about him. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. You know, he's, he's not a legend. And also, like, Andy Hamilton, who, I'll be honest, I had never heard of until we did our series on the best, you know, best players of all time. That guy must have been a monster. <laughs> the more yeah. I read about it, like, that guy must have been great. <laughs> Yeah, it is weird to see the because like in the one I uh, in the seventy six one like AJ Duhay comes up and I think we very did we even talk about him in our greatest I think we list? mentioned him but it, we he didn't get a full hearing how about that yeah yeah and so like to listen to Finney describe him you're like this guy must have been like the greatest player in LSU history <laughs> like he was just going like he wrote like a whole paragraph about how athletic he was and how like. And this is when he was a sophomore, like before he even became, you know, being like all SEC or all maybe an All-American even. I don't know. I don't think he was an All-American. But it's just interesting to like, you know, that's someone that just gets passed over. That's, no one talks about that guy. Yeah. No, I, I think that's. Also, Ensminger was on that team. I should have mentioned that in the article. Yeah, that's all right. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll let it he go. He didn't play uh-huh. back in 76 as a freshman. but Hey, look, I got to say nice things about Lynn Amity in 1962. You did. You know, that's the thing, the first nice thing I've ever said about Lynn Amity, you know, ever. Because, like, I don't think of him as a football player. I mean, I grew up with him as a coach. Right. <clears throat> and he was a terrible coach. <laughs> and what's going to happen is, is there's going to be kids, you know, when guys become coaches, 
that I think of as players, you know, and if they fail, they're going to think of them as terrible coaches. <laughs> and, and you'll be like, no, this guy was a great player. They'll be like, yeah, whatever, old man. <laughs> the game passed him by. He's like, no, Kuiper. <laughs> and, but yes, I have, I honestly don't care if anybody reads it. This, I just really enjoy it also, it's just a fun to do a deep dive into the history of the program. It really, you're right when you say <clears throat> the issues facing us now seem to be plaguing plague the program in different ways, but pretty much the same issues throughout the entire history. And that's just really fascinating that we just can't. We are who we are. Yeah, it's like 58 beleaguered AD uh, on the fringe coach. Angry rich boosters. <laughs> that was the, I was like, okay, yeah. I've heard this and story before. <laughs> substandard quarterback play saved yeah. by a great running back and a terrific defense. Amazing I swear defense to God, that it's, we it's, run the ball. <laughs> it's every team. Even yeah, even eighty six, which was had a great offense, saved by the defense. <laughs> like it's <laughs> it's just the way it's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. And I, I think that's kind of beautiful. Like I think it's it's becoming a. It wasn't an intentional theme, but it's kind of coming through. And I don't. And this goes back to what you know, we're talking about. You know, Bamani Jones. It's not about being a fan. Is not about waiting to win a title. It's about enjoying everything. And <clears throat> I think the LSU football program really reflects the culture of Louisiana. Like it's this weird, unique totally dysfunctional yet somehow it works thing that you can't even explain to an outsider and it's really passionate and you know they're going to screw it up somehow but then sometimes there's these moments where it just everything works out you know yeah yeah and that's that's mardi gras <laughs> like, <laughs> but most of the time you're just like how does this place even you know deliver mail <laughs> and it's just it's so wonderful to see, yeah, like there's there's always a rich upset booster. There's always a cranky writer. Ah, oh, there's, you know, you know, there's always a bitchy writer. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I like the your thing out of. It made me funny. It made me laugh because I wrote an article on the site a couple of years ago that was like basically tearing into something Ron Higgins said or wrote. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh God!" Like I'm gonna, he, Ron Higgins is gonna be pissed off. And anyway, I think Ron, Higg- I'm pretty sure Ron Higgins still follows me on Twitter. And um, then I read your article today. I was like, "Oh, Ron Higgins didn't give a shit about my little article. Like he's been doing this for 40 years. Like, <laughs> yeah, Ron Higgins. Game. Like, <laughs> yeah, Ron Higgins tore into it. I mean, holy crap! Like, yeah, I mean, people talk about bloggers don't care. I mean, yeah. man, Higgins went after it. <laughs> I'm just imagining that, like, Ron Higgins pulled up my piece and was like, yeah, get it. <laughs> you know, like, I feel like that's his article. Like, his, that's his attitude. Just, like, go at it, you know, tear I, it to shreds. Well, what was great about him ripping apart the, you know, the Arndt Sparrow hire is that Stovall was not a good coach. Things were falling apart. You know, Broadhead comes in, fires the guy, hires, like, an NFL head coach. It was, you know, he Arndt Sparner was – the defensive coordinator of the no name defense in Miami, like he was, I mean, that'd be like today hiring, like, you know, who's the biggest defensive coordinator on the block right now? Like it would be a both. 
Yeah, it'd, yeah, it'd be like hiring Venables. I mean, it'd be a coup. And he's like, nope, doesn't understand college. He's too old. <laughs> like, just dismissed it totally out of hand. It was so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird to read, like, uh, it was weird to read. It's weird to read, like, transition years, just, just like what the fan base was thinking. That's also, that's probably what I am most interested in is, like, trying to understand the climate of the program when the season happened. Like, that's what fascinates me. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, like, where, uh, what are the fans thinking? What are the expectations? And like, what are, what is our leadership thinking? What are they expecting? Kind of what does the coach expect to get out of the team? All of that is fascinating to me. And just to and hear, like, like, yeah, it's just interesting. Like, in 2000, like, I don't know, expectations ex- were so tempered back then. And so the Tennessee game, we pulled the upset, and it's like the greatest thing that's ever happened to LSU football, you know? Yep, because it happened right right at – I thought the parallel to the Auburn game, you know, at Troy and Auburn, UAB, Tennessee, really, yeah. really nailed it. Like everybody was just so destroyed. I remember uh, this is – I had just moved to Mar- back to Maryland, and this is still very early internet, and the game wasn't on – it wasn't on TV, at least not outside of Louisiana. It might have been on pay per view, like it might have been on Tiger Vision, but you couldn't get that in Maryland. They don't, you know, yeah. they didn't sell it up there. So I sat down at my computer and got on, you know, broadcast.com, pulled up the WWL feed, and I listened to the LSU game, you know, through essentially Yahoo <laughs> and just sat there, you know, with a, I mean, and this is like, I mean, this is not today's wired connectivity. This is 2000. Like, you know, yeah. I think I still had dial up. Yeah. <laughs> and I just sat there and just listened to us lose the fucking UAB. I mean, it was the worst. I, I, I and I just sat alone in our, you know, in a computer room, just staring at a computer. And I remember I had the LSU, whatever LSU sports that was back then. It might have still been called LSU Sportsnet. Just refreshing the box score. <laughs> just, oh, it was the worst. I think it's the most miserable game experience I've ever had. <laughs> and then we lost. Yeah, and that's what led into the Tennessee game. Like you were, you went into it so defeated. Speaking of NX, like how history, I guess, repeats itself in terms of LSU football. We also have our inexplicable mid-major losses because this year we had Troy, obviously. You got the UAB during Saban, and you brought up Miami of Ohio. Which is the, the most famous. Yeah. yeah. Which, and it's like, and what's, what's they all happen about 15, 16 years apart. Like, we're just due for it every so often. Oh, what's funny about the Miami game is that season was great. We right. won the SEC. <laughs> like, I mean, like, Troy and UAB, looking back on it, are forgivable losses because it was a new coach in a kind of a rebuilding year, or at least a building year. Let's not yeah. even call it rebuilding. Like new coach comes in, just weird things happen. We've written about that, how just everywhere new coach comes in, stuff's going to slide. And as they come in, you know, as they come in, they're going to, they're going to drop an inexplicable game. Yeah, just Texas happens. lost to Maryland this year. Yeah. yeah just it, that happens everywhere. Um, but 1986 losing to Miami of Ohio, that, <laughs> That team had no business at nine turnovers. I, I I do not remember that. I remember they turned the ball over a lot. I do not remember they turned it over nine times. That's brutal. They outgained them two to one. I, I mean, like, I'm not a yardage zealot, but you outgain a team two to one, you're going to win a lot of football games. Yes. I just, 
which once again goes into why 1986 is the most LSU season of all time. Uh, it, it's it has everything. <laughs> you know, it has great wins, inexplicable losses. You know, uh, beating Lou Holtz, and then it ended, which how every season in the '80s seemed to end, even though it did twice. It seemed like it ended every year this way, losing in the Sugar Bowl to Nebraska. We did that a lot in the '80s. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I did not realize, like, when I started writing about the Nebraska game, I was like, oh, I bet we've never, like, we've played Nebraska, like, one other time. And I go look, and it's, like, ten times or something like yeah. that. It's quite I, I remember we played, a, no, actually it was the Orange Bowl in 83. I remember that. That's, like, one of my, like, I, I that's, like, one of my fondest memories as a kid because I was a little kid, and my parents let me stay up for it. Yeah. So I sat in front of the TV and watched us get housed. <laughs> I mean, just, I, and also, that's back when the Orange Bowl had like that really ridiculous halftime show. And I remember even as a little kid, I'm like, this this is going on a long time, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> and so I, I, will, I will remember that game. And then, yeah, and then we lost in the you know 86 Orange Bowl, 86 Sugar Bowl to them as well and it just seemed like we played Nebraska every year in a bowl game and lost and now we haven't played Nebraska in forever i know i'm trying to so this was another amazing fact that i came into and you probably knew this but so McClendon when he retired or when he was fired which was also the circumstances of his firing and leaving are very bizarre. I'm sure you'll hit on it because I think you have that next run. Like I, ha- I have 79. Do not take 1979 from me. I'm so looking forward to that. But I think you even have like 77, 78, and 79. Which yeah, is I, his last three years. Okay, yeah, I'm, but yeah, it's bizarre, like the bizarre three years of why he even got three more years. It would never happen in this age. But just strange. Like they came to him and were like. We're basically going to fire you, but we—I guess they didn't have the money to pay out his contract, so they negotiated it down to a shortened deal, and he accepted. Like he was like, "Okay, that's fine." Yeah, he's like, "All right, cool." Well, you know, and, and, and that's then it was supposed to be like two years, and Dietzel came back, and Dietzel was like, he was going to like McClendon was getting inducted into the AFCA or something, and Dietzel was like, uh, "It would be heartless for us to fire him when that is happening." So mm-hmm. we're going to give him an extra give, season. Yeah. yeah, let's give him one more year. <laughs> oh my god can you imagine what uh, there was no talk radio back then but can you imagine what talk radio would have been like or just the you know what tiger droppings would have been like we're giving this you know this has been an extra year just so we can collect a trophy i'm like, trying to like yeah it's like if if oliva okay we went through the a&m debacle that next season miles come back it's like eight and four but he doesn't get fired at the end of the year, then Levi's like, well, we're going to fire him, but not this year. We're going to give him one more season because, like, he's going to go into the Hall of Fame, we found out. Like, yeah, and we're, but, we're just going to let him have the year, though. Like, yeah. we're still going to fire him. Like, we, we guarantee he is going to be yeah, fired. he's out of here. <laughs> no matter what happens. <laughs> he's just going to be a dead man walking for a whole season. Oh, God. I, yeah, like – 1979 is another glorious, glorious LSU season. <laughs> but also, I didn't mean to like rain on stuff you're going to write about. But no, 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 no. I, I'm. I think the fun thing is to talk about the history. I don't think. I don't think we talk about the history of the the program or just college football in general enough. I think it's it's fun, yeah. and it's where we came from. So I'm totally cool, you know. And also, I like taunting uh, Penny that it's coming. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not even a lot. 1979, I'm writing about USC. We lost that game. All right. <laughs> I mean, you have com- to. It is coming. That is a that is probably the most legendary loss in the program's history. So, so. It, it, I had no idea this was all to actually get to the point of like McClendon was only fifty six when he was done. Yeah. He was Which hired is, at like thirty one. Yeah, I he thought was he was such a young man when he was hired. I thought he was always old, and honestly, he was hired <laughs> the same way that Mike Archer was. Yeah, that I didn't know. He was basically on Dietzel's staff, and then when Dietzel left for army. He's like, yeah, just hire my defensive coordinator. He's really popular, you know, Chinese bandits. Yeah. And they're like, okay, cool. He's the head coach. And I kind of, that's what coaching searches were back then. Yeah. It was, that was interesting to read about too. And even then like the selection of diesel, how fascinating that was because there was, um, yeah, like he wasn't the top choice necessarily, but he just super impressed the higher ups and got the job. So, but yeah, 56, then he never coached again at all in any capacity. He yeah. was just done. And because I always feel bad for Mike Archer that he never got a second chance. Because Mike Archer, I always felt, got hired too soon. Yeah. And he was a bad coach, but he wasn't a terrible coach. Like, you could see he did good things as well. I mean, he did win 10 games once. He wasn't a total disaster. He just, yeah, and he stayed. He might still be employed. Like he's yeah, been consistently he, employed for a long time. Yeah, he became a defensive coordinator and just stayed as a DC in the SEC for a very long time. I remember he was at Kentucky forever. It seemed, and <clears throat> I always liked Mike Hart. Like <clears throat> he was just a guy who was in over his head. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. like, and yeah, he won with Arn Spogger's talent. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like it was basically like. They, fu- <laughs> they fired the AD, so they fired the coach. <laughs> well, actually, they didn't, you know, Armstrong quit, but still, he was basically going to get fired. And they look around, and they have Mike Shanahan, Steve Spurrier, and Mike Archer. And they hire Mike Archer. Like, that, <laughs> like you know, that is, that's rough. <laughs> like you were so close. I mean, can it's the great what if? Because and this is where I got into it with the Alabama game. If if LSU loses that game or any game that year, because they won a bunch of close games, if they lose any of those games, Mike Archer probably doesn't get the job. Yeah, yeah. And uh, LSU, I, I, as much as the legend is, is that Bill Arnsparger told them not to hire Spur. I don't. I don't that's a good story, but I don't think it's actually true. Does that yeah, make it sense? Seem to add up. It, the the years don't work out. It's it's a cool story because he did end up at Florida. I, I think they would have hired Shanahan, but still, they would have hired Shanahan. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I, I still think we would have passed over Spurrier at the you know even though he was in the. Then again, I don't. What year did you? No, the US that had, the USFL hadn't happened yet, right? Because Steve Spurrier, yeah, I don't know the timeline. God, yeah, the timeline gets weird. You know, like, now I gotta look this up. Like, because Steve Spurrier was he at Duke or was he at, uh, you know, the Memphis? Uh, what you call it? You know, Riverboat Gamble. Um, yeah, let's see. But maybe no, eighty three, eighty five, Tampa Bay Bandits. Okay. And then eighty seven, he got hired at Duke. So That's that right, could have been that the, one too. The Duke run is what set him up for Florida. Yeah. But he was so awesome. Yeah, he was at USFL because he had, he was the Duke offensive coordinator before then. Yep. Yeah, man, if they with the USFL folding, the writing was on the wall. With the yeah, they could have had Spurrier. Like 
I don't think we want to hire him. I still think we want to hire Shanahan because he fits into what an LSU coach is. But that is the great what if. We, we whiffed on Spurrier. It's interesting to look like – so I was trying to remember the name, but when we hired Dietzel, which is hard to say that was a bad hire. Obviously, he delivers our first national title, and Dietzel was a legend and a great coach. But And he left for – he only left for one reason, the Army gig. Like, exactly, which was prestigious as all hell back then. Uh, but he got passed over – or the guy they wanted was Era Parsegian, which is another legend. So it's kind of yeah. interesting. And, like, Charlie Mack just – Kind of got the job. There wasn't really another candidate. It was like, yeah, yeah, let's just give it to the DC. Um, <clears throat> it is funny to look at. Like, I think with uh, Denardo, I remember Pat Sullivan was the other candidate. Who I think even like they announced he got the job, and then the f- contract fell through. Yikes! Good, good job, Jodine. Good job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my grandma worked for Jodine. Oh. Yeah, my my mom knew Jodine. She has nice things to say about him. I'm like, he was a terrible lady, mom. <laughs> yeah, I feel like my grandma thought he was just like a nice man. Yeah, exactly. Like, my mom really liked Jodine. And I'm like, uh, okay, you, you can like him all you want, but he was bad at his job. <laughs> like, <clears throat> yeah, it's hard to, I can't, because like when Les got picked, I guess the alternative was Petrino, because that's another what if that people do all the time. I'd still rather have Les than Petrino. Me too. Well, I, feel that, like, I feel like a Bertman addressed that when, like, he did an interview a couple, like, last year. Yeah, yeah and he, he was just kind of like, yeah, we were interested, but, like, we just didn't think he checked the right all character the boxes. boxes. Yeah. I, I think LSU got its guy. Like, like, I also think with, like, Arn Sparner, that was the guy they wanted. Like, mm-hmm. if you read Bob Broadhead, he wanted Arn Sparner and he got him. Like, there yeah. wasn't another candidate. Stovall was, well... Our head, you know, our first, you know, first choice died. <laughs> yes, I mean, I mean, that's you know, that's Bo Ryan. So that was just a, you know, a former player helping the program out. Yes, and was in over his head, didn't do a good job, but <clears throat> I can at least. You're not going to crush him for it. Yeah, I'm not going to crush Stovall for that. Like, I, I think he helped the program out out of a rough spot. And but I do think it's funny. It's like if you think about it, it's like. You have this 20 years of stability. You know, Dietzel on the Clendon. I mean, there's some down years in there, but by and large, it's eight and three yeah. every year. Program's eight, in a good place. Eight and three, eight and three, eight and three. They can't beat Bama, but eight and three, eight and three. You know, maybe they'll go nine, two, maybe they'll go seven and four, but, you know, they're in there. And then you get the 80s, and they're just all over the place. It's like, you know, 10 win seasons followed by three win seasons. It's just, I, the 80s are great. I mean, it's just this insanity. And then the 90s, by and large, are terrible. Yes. And then you get the golden age, you know, from about 2000 to the present. It's pretty much all great. And it's just weird that you can really kind of break up the eras. You know, it's the Charles McClendon era, the Les Miles Saban era, and then that weird era in between them where we just ran through head coaches and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not entirely their fault. I mean, no, some of it's our fault, but not all of it. It's just, but I find like it's sort of like the old Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. Living through an interesting season is terrible because it just tears your hair out. I mean, as I've always said, I'm going to name my first. True. I'm going to name my first ulcer 2007. That, oh, 
when you know you're going to win the title, if you read about it in, you know, now. So if I tell my kids about it, it, it'll always be great because there's no drama. They know how it ends. And it's yay the whole way. Living through 2007 was horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, every game was so stressful. And so that's kind of how I feel about the 80s. The 80s are the best time to write about because it's so crazy. But they were the worst time to live through because they were so crazy. (laughs) The 90s are more just bad. (laughs) I mean, there's some good seasons here and there. But, you know, that's where you get, you know, six straight losing seasons, Curly Holman. Those just suck to live through and they're not fun to write about. Yeah, it's really the, the lone extended dark period of our program. I tell you, '94 was fun to write. I'm not gonna lie. I, I enjoy, I enjoyed taking him out and beating him behind the garage. <laughs> that never gets old for me. But what's weird is, is like because that's when I was in school. Yeah, I, I have very fond memories of the Curly Hallman teams. Yeah, I feel like, like everyone says that. Like, I really like the players. Like, I mean, I love Gabe Northern. I mean, you can't mm-hmm. find someone my age who doesn't, like, just worship Gabe. Um, you know, James Gilliard was a beast. I, I mean, I loved him. Alan Stansberry, just great linebacker who doesn't get enough credit for being a great linebacker. I mean, <clears throat> I think Jamie Howard really gave a lot to this program and didn't get a whole lot of support. And, you know, and he had some great moments. And, and so I really – I love those teams. They just weren't good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is part of what makes history cool too is that it, it, it has me considering our current teams and thinking about guys on our teams that were I – don't, I don't know how you would define them, like neither good nor bad, but – played a lot so I mean you know in a sense they are good because if they play yeah. a lot they have to be good to play at LSU but like someone I don't know like Jalen Mills okay yeah Jalen Mills played virtually every game in his entire career outside of like I think he got suspended for a little bit and maybe was injured for a little bit he came in as a freshman and played you know he played for four years he was a little known recruit and he was never to my memory all co- on co- all conference or anything um, never really won any awards. He was like a middle round draft pick, and now he's like playing on the Eagles and playing pretty well for them. But it's just an interesting guy. Like I don't feel like in twenty years, like Jalen Mills is not really going to be remembered. Like other no, people no. are going to be and talking I, about. I remember we, when we did the offensive line when we were talking about the greatest play, you know, greatest players ever. I, I remember talking a lot about Kevin Bawai. Yeah, Kevin Bawai didn't win any. I, I mean, he was all SEC, but you know. Yeah, whatever for a player that great, you would think it was like Allen trophies and whatever. Yeah, I, I, I remember he lost the Remington to Jim Pine. Remington, that's the one. Because my brother uh, went to Virginia Tech, and uh, you know, I was just like, how does that piece? It? And I went to Virginia Tech games that year, and I was just like, this guy is nowhere near as good as Kevin Mawai. Mawai is the, and he's like, yeah, whatever, shut up, your team's terrible. <laughs> like, but I mean, it is. It's it's funny because he's a guy who's probably going to fall off. Like I remember mentioning the time and like if we do if someone follows up on us at another site and does the greatest, you know, LSU players of all time, a guy like Kevin Wise probably gonna fall off the list because there's yeah. really no re- you know, there's not that record of him. But if you yeah. were there, he's amazing. You know? Yeah, if you're if you're if you're stacking um 
trophy cases next to one another as means of like you were saying like the further you get away from it it becomes the just the stat line comparison yeah and yeah. you know the, the trophies are part of the stat line yeah and yeah i think i think we did the same thing with like 1958 it was like moose stewart like i i, I don't know moose stewart but you know he was all american so he must have been pretty good yeah <laughs> and and i think that's that's an interesting thing. And like certain players will always be legendary just because so many people talk about him. I think, you know, Nacho Abagamo is one of the famous examples. Like he, you know, Hokey Gaijan is, you know, Hokey. Like he's always part of that's the name. Um, but also like, you know, Jacob Hester is always going to be Jacob Hester. Yeah. Yeah. There, it's interesting to think about. I don't know what goes into being a legend. Like we were just, we talked about Cannon and obviously Cannon is, I mean, Cannon is. Yeah, he is. Like LSU mantelpiece. And we both think Jim Taylor was better, but I'm not saying no one thinks Jim Taylor was good. Of course people think Jim Taylor was good, but he's not a legend. Like, I don't think he's an LSU legend. He's not, he's not carried in that rarefied air. Yeah. 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 People don't talk about him the same way they talk about, you know, you know, Billy Cannon. Yeah. Which is like, I feel like the same thing will happen with Fournette and Geis. Like Fournette is going to be a legend. And I don't think Geis will be. And yeah, they're, I think they're kind of equitable. I think uh, Geis is going to become Charles Alexander. Yeah. Where, you know, he was a great player and everybody's like, yeah, he was a great player. Like you, you won't find anyone who will badmouth Charles Alexander. No. But no one really talks about him. Actually, I have more people talk about Dalton Hilliard than they talk about Alexander. And Alexander's clearly better than Hilliard. Yeah. And, and Hilliard, I mean, that's not to knock Hilliard. Hilliard was a great player, too. You know, it's just, it's weird. Some guys connect. Yeah. And you can't control who's going to connect and who isn't. You know, you know, Teran Matthew connected, and he was also an amazing player. But part of that's, he was a mythic player. Yeah. A lot of Tran Matthew is you had to be there. Yeah, it was unbelievable because his numbers aren't. Yeah, they're not. And and then he was kicked off the team really quick. You know, he's very much, you know, you could confuse him with a guy like Mark Roman in the 90s. who was a very good player who got kicked off the team. You know, he was he was probably our best defensive back on that on those teams and then kind of squandered it. You know, Matthew at least has the NFL, so he'll, you know, he'll get remembered a little bit more. Yes. Um, He's also giving big money to the program, so that'll probably yeah. help him. And also, it's easier to stay high profile these days, once again, because the internet and stuff like that. Yes. But it's amazing, like, it's almost like people have forgotten about Wendell Davis. Oh, yeah, for sure. Wendell Davis. Right? People, look up Wendell Davis's numbers. They're amazing. He is like if you're making a list of the 10 best players in the program's history and you don't have Wendell Davis on it, stop and start again. You know, he he's arguably on the Mount Rushmore of your your best four players ever. But for some reason, like if you go from that era, most people remember Eric Martin. Yeah, for sure. Which is weird. Eric Martin Eric Martin will tell you he's not as good as Wendell Davis. <laughs> <laughs> I think the big, like the big one, and you and I stump for this guy all the time. But in twenty years, it always just perturbs me that people talk about that Jamarcus Russell wasn't very good. 
And I'm like, yeah. are, do you look at our record books? Like, did you watch him play? I don't really know. Are we talking about the same person? Because I don't feel like we are. Because his numbers hold up. If you go back and look, he's all over the record book. And also, he was pretty fucking incredible, like, yeah. in real time. I know he struggled early, but who, like, most people do. I, I think it's because of the NFL career. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, he had a glorious flame out and brought some of it on himself. Like, But also, like, and then here's the thing is, he didn't get a second chance and almost everyone else did. Uh, you know, as I, as I always, Ryan Leaf got a second chance. Johnny Manziel got a second chance. Yeah. I mean, guys who, you know, just screwed up spectacularly got a second gig. Jamarcus actually wasn't terrible his first year. It was his second year that he went to crap. Yep. And once he got cut <laughs> and once he got cut, he, he was out of the league and could never come back. And he's honestly a guy when you read like interviews with him when he was trying to get back in the league, kind of seemed like he got it. Yeah, I think so. Like I, I I'm not saying he got screwed by the league because I do think a lot of you know who makes it and who doesn't is opportunity. And uh, I think Jamarcus Russell got taken by the exact wrong team. Yes. Who basically indulged his every worst instinct. So it was kind of a perfect storm, a terrible. So I don't think he got screwed. But had he gone to a different organization or had a team given him a second chance, I think his career, there would be a different story about Jamarcus Russell. Instead, he's remembered as, you know, you know, purple drink. (laughs) That's very true. I'm just trying to think like, yeah, like if he goes to the Packers or something, like a, a really stable organization with good culture. You know, his personal issues still happen, but it's likely that he gets a better environment to handle that stuff and not sort of let it derail him interpersonally, which is basically what he said happened. Like, he lost his uncle, who was, like, basically his father figure, and his life just kind of went to hell because he was, like, abusing. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. he's depressed, basically. So, and I don't think, like... If when you tell that story to someone, like that makes him super sympathetic, and you're like, "Man, that sucks." Yeah, and it's it, it's just weird who, and also like Mike Anderson is you know remembered more fondly than a lot of the the run of linebackers who all yes were all American, and that's mainly because of the restaurant. <laughs> it's a good restaurant. I, it is. I, I enjoy Mike Anderson's, but like George Bevan was just as good. But you know. We don't remember him yeah. because – and that's just a weird thing. Certain guys could just get, you know, you know, certain songs get stuck in our souls. And I, I think that's really interesting. And there's really nothing you can do about it. You know, memory is unfair. It's true. But also what I do like about it, I actually like that because I like the – I like the stories. And I think going back has been really fun trying to cut through the fog – and put together what actually happened. Yeah, I can't wait. Like, in when you are like sixty-five, you're just going to be telling everyone that'll listen that Malachi Dupree is the reason why Smiles lost his job. He totally was. I, I and I said it contemporaneously. Like, honestly, no one's ever going to believe me. And the thing is, I don't dislike Malachi Dupree, <laughs> but man, go out of bounds, dude. Go out of bounds. All right. Questions. Did we get anything this week? 
Uh, let me look. I didn't even check. I kind of forgot. It's okay. I sent out the flyer, but I, uh, let's see here. Oh yeah, we have something. Okay. Let's get back in here. It's a little old. I haven't done this in a while. All right. I'm rusty. It's okay. All right, Crackles. Hey, Crackles. Hey, Crackles. Uh, for Jacoby Stevens to supposedly be so great, he is, he, he is having a hard time seeing the field. Do you think he transfers? He's a uh, sophomore, dude. Relax. I know. He's been, on, <laughs> like, he's been through one year in the program. Um, honestly, I think they ran into some depth problems at wide receiver last year. Knew he was a super athlete and just kept fucking with his position. And they just set him back because he was never able to master anything. So I think put him in one position and let him grow and he'll be fine. Yeah, I think he'll be a safety. Yeah, I think he's he'll be a safety now and he'll he's not going to move again. Um, I mean, it happens. Though, we might, not. though he might you know what? He might return kicks. Yeah, I think he, he has that athletic ability. Um, and, that, and that might be a way to get him on the field because we don't really have a set kick returner. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest – I'd have to go back and look. I don't remember. But I think my one concern with him was like he's sort of a jack-of-all-trades master of none, which is basically what we saw this year. Like he's he's athletic. He can do a bunch of things, but he's not really shown that he's like great at one thing. So that's the coach's job to me, though. It's like yeah, he's got all he's the seen, tools. They just got to focus it. He seems like a safety to me. Like that's where you put athletic guys who don't have a position. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he'll be fine. We're really deep at safety, though, so that's an interesting thing, too. Uh, Okay, Seth from the site. Uh, Billy and I were talking about who will potentially start the linebacker positions. The biggest questions are who starts next to Devin White inside and who plays the F. And he says Divinity, which I think is Divinity has a good chance to play the F linebacker. Yeah, I I think... I think the outside linebackers are kind of set. It's going to be Chase on a divinity. Yeah, I agree. So then you get into the inside. You have Devin White clearly as one of them. And then your classic middle linebacker, I guess, is a race between Phillips and Queen. But Taylor played a lot, too. So. Taylor, yeah. Taylor's in there. So I think it's between those three. And yeah, I, it's a toss-up between those guys. But I, I think Chase on a divinity have jobs locked down. I feel like they got torn with the Phillips-Taylor thing because Phillips is incredibly more athletic than Taylor, but Taylor probably a little bit football smarter. So that was kind of a battle. I think Taylor's going to end up playing more middle linebacker, but Phillips being the backup to White is going to see the field a lot because he he is the heir to White. Yeah. But but maybe Phillips will then stay for his senior year because he won't play until his junior year. Yeah. You know. I think there might be some of that going on too. So, um, which uh, I think tying that into Stevens could be another strategy there. Is like, well, if we buy him up for a little bit, we get to keep him in the program longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, which this is on this depth chart note. Did you see their random piece that Dellinger did the inter- the two part interview? No, I didn't. Okay, so Dellinger did a sit down with Aranda. Um, and just ran through the signees and then, like, talked to him about basically, like, what schemes and stuff. 
But the most interesting thing that I said, and I cannot believe this did not get more attention. Ross even like freaking tweeted this as like a quote when he was pushing the story. Was it Aranda said Fahoko, Brayden Braden Fahoko is the best defensive lineman on the team or was the best defensive lineman on the team last year. Wow. Yeah, which I was like, holy shit. Uh, I'm surprised it didn't get more traction just because, I mean, we all thought Rashard Lawrence was pretty damn good when he wasn't hurt. So, Wow, that's, that's high praise. Yeah, like Ross just straight up asked him. He was like, Pete Jenkins said that Fehoko is the best defensive lineman on the team. Would you agree? And he was like, yes, he is. Jeez. <laughs> like he just outright said it. It wasn't like a, well, there's a few guys, you know, but he stands out. He's amongst them. You know, and it was like, no, he just outright said it. And Randy's not one of the kind of guys who just, you know, blow smoke just to blow it. If no. he's saying that, he means it. Like yeah. he's not a, he's not a hype man. Which should, should make you guys like everyone excited because a, we need someone to fill in there. And he's, I don't know. He's flown a little under the radar since he's a transfer. Oh. Our defense can be terrifyingly awesome next year. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's one of those, if Tolliver had come back, I'd have no questions about our defense. Yeah, it's going to be interesting what they do at corner. I mean, they're already trying some things. So I, I like them moving the guy. I, I like the moves they made. Uh, yeah. look, look, you know what? It's going to be, you know, Vincent, you know, Fulton probably have the inside track there. Yes. But, uh, I like the moving that just for depth because guys are going to see the field. We do not have. Yeah, we just don't have a whole lot of corners. So it's an easy pitch. Like, hey, you can be the nineteenth wide receiver or you can play. Which one do you want? And you know, and there'll be nickel corners, but I still like them doing it. So they'll see the field. Uh, All right, Vinny. If you were drafting a football team of fictional movie TV football players, who do you take first? Well, Paul Crew. Well, <laughs> of course. Um, well, I, the Grey Ghost, because yeah. you know everybody's all American. Um, but that's Billy Cannon. We've already said he's overrated. So um, I will say Johnny Utah. I like that choice. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with Johnny because he had that great Sugar Bowl. <laughs> no, the Sugar Bowl was replacements. Um, <laughs> I love yeah, the replacements. Jo- <laughs> that was Shane Falco that had that Sugar Bowl, but he had that's a terrible right. Sugar Bowl. <laughs> No, I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, you need a quarterback, so I'll, I'll still stick with uh, Johnny Utah. Johnny Utah. Um, Vinny, again, if someone cut you a one-time check to wear a different Johnny Weir outfit to work every day for a full week, how much would they have to pay you? Uh, I'm assuming I don't have to pay for the outfit. I'm assuming that's part of the deal because those those outfits don't look cheap. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I don't want to use the money that they gave me to buy outfits. Um, I don't know. Like only a week could be one where I'm doing back office stuff. I don't think it would take a whole lot. Yeah. You know, like I think you could get that done for like twenty grand. Wow. You know, I'd probably, like, do, I'd probably do it for a grand. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's it's got to be more than you know. If you're gonna do it, like I might do it for you. You might be able to talk me down to ten grand, but you know, five is just probably not even worth it. I mean, ten, twenty grand. I mean, I have shit I want to do around the house. You know, fixing the driveway isn't tr- isn't cheap. Cleaning the gutters. You know, once you start adding that stuff up. <laughs> We do. We're, we live in totally different like parts of the country, which I think would impact this decision. Because in Texas, yeah, you would probably be like hissed. Yeah, but out here they would just be like, "Well, that's a little weird." But all right, <laughs> yeah, no, 
And also, like, I, I noticed tonight, a little bit of gray showing up, Johnny. A little bit of gray. Uh-oh. It's got to get a, like a dot. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I wouldn't, I, I, it made me feel old. I don't like Johnny Weir aging on me. Uh, okay, Michael Lawrence. So we got – there's a couple questions here that are kind of related, so I'm going to lump them all together. So I'm going to read you like okay. three questions, but they're all basically the same thing. All right, so tell me when to go. Yeah, one's Michael Lawrence and the other two are Jacob Hibbard. So it's – Michael Lawrence says, what are the realistic goals for the offense this year considering we have to replace uh, you know, running back – a bunch of new receivers, QB. And then Jacob says, what are you looking to see in the spring game and realistic expectations for Brennan or whoever wins QB job? And has Seth's breakdown of Brennan destroyed our hopes of Brennan? Man, Seth's breakdown of Miles Brennan made me cry. I'm not going to lie. Um, I don't need that kind of negative. His negative energy only makes me stronger. Um, yeah, because I really respect Seth's opinion. And it wasn't a brutal takedown, but – it didn't fill you with a whole lot of confidence. Um, I'm hoping it was just that the game was a little bit too fast for him because he does have the physical tools. Um, yeah, I think the whole season hinges on Brennan or Narcisse finding a quarterback. Um, I think if we have good quarterback play, it could be a pretty good offense. Um, but without good quarterback play, if we have usual LSU quarterback play, I don't think we have the running game that we normally have to overcome that. I think this is my crazy prediction. I don't know if it's going to be good or not, but I think for better or worse, they're going to give the fans the offense they want, which could be a glorious disaster, much like 2008 when Jarrett Lee kept throwing pick sixes. I think we could see something like that this year. Oh, I think it's very possible, and we have a better receiving core when we did in 2008. That's I think for sure. You have so many receivers. You're going to have to throw the ball. It's the strength of the team. Yeah, they're going to throw it a lot. That's what I'm getting at. And we haven't done that, so let's see what happens. I, I agree with you that, oh, on that. I think there's going – it'll be a recent LSU – I don't want to say record, but definitely it'll be close to a record of pass attempts. Yeah. I mean, if we come out and throw the ball, throw it well, and the offense is good, I think even if we go like 8-4, and four, <laughs> people, people will be, be excited. Happy. Yeah, I think people yeah. will be happy. Yeah, if we're, and also the defense is going to be good. It's gonna be good. It is. So, uh, Rougerou wants to know what's the best character on MTV's The State. Ooh, good question. That's a you question. It really is. Um, I'm gonna say that uh, The State didn't really have a whole lot of recurring characters. I mean, I know it had Barry and Levon and two hundred forty dollars worth of pudding, which I'm a big fan of. But I mean, this is the the show that once Doug became popular, they turned it into a Kabuki sketch, which is just a brilliant commentary on sketch comedy. So I'm going to say any time that Ben Garant got to yell at people is the best character because that guy was funny as hell. Um, the Burger Hut sketch where he with this mayonnaise on the burger, Carl, is like one of my all time favorite or actually Speaking of Ben Garant yelling sketches, his Sid Vicious, unbelievably great sketch. So that's going to be not really a recurring character, but a returning motif. Uh, For Crackles, The State was a sketch comedy show on the television channel 
MTV, which once started as a channel that ran uh, music videos popularly, and now have just turned into like a pop culture sort of channel. And yes, uh, and it was in the nineties. And the state launched a whole bunch of comedy careers, including the guys who did uh, Wet Hot American Summer, which you may have seen, or the guys who do um, what you call it, the uh, um, Reno Nine One One. Yes. So that's how you know uh, Thomas Lennon. Just but, uh, uh, just Google the state and look at the pictures. You'll probably know the people from other things. And it's really freaking funny. It was <laughs> glory. It is. Is it my favorite? And I, I, I still would put Mr. Show with Bob and David on top of it, but it's, um, it's other than that, it's probably my favorite sketch comedy show of all time. I, I love the state so much. Um, and oh, also the sea. Speaking of uh, Ben Garant yelling at people, the Sea Monkey sketch also a big fan. <laughs> um. <laughs> the Mr. Show was Bob and David did a reunion in Chicago when I lived there, like just like a very quick. <sighs> I just like I saw tickets go on sale, and I was like, "Yeah, I need to buy tickets for that." And then like when I went back to buy tickets, they were gone. And I was like, oh, "Yeah, fuck. no, yeah, no." People my age snapped that shit up in an hour. <laughs> yeah, it was like a tiny little venue. Like, what was I thinking? Not just being like, "Okay, buying tickets to that." We're like my youth. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder just, if Jack. I wonder if Jack Black will be there. No, Jack Black's not coming for the reunion. <laughs> it's weird to see Bob Odenkirk becoming like a somewhat reputable actor. No, it really is for me because the guy who David Cross was the one who kind of became the star off of that. Yeah, like he was the one who was first able to parlay it into not just a stand-up comedy career, but into like major motion pictures. He was like in Men in Black and stuff. Right. Like, I mean, it's small roles, but. But you know, rules. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, he was he was on Arrested Development. I mean, like David Cross kind of and it was always like, whatever happened to Bob Odenkirk? And now, thanks to, you know, Breaking Bad, you know, Bob Odenkirk's become like a really respected actor. Yeah, he was nominated for Golden Globe and he was in The Post and he was really good in The Post. God, I, I love Bob Odenkirk so much. He is one of the funniest yellers of all time. Speaking. That's true. Uh, I mean, he's so good at comedic yelling. And also, like, Brian Kenny is the voice of SpongeBob came out of that show. It's pretty wild. SpongeBob came out of that. You know, um, but, you know, but Jack Black got his debut on that. Brian Posehn, who was on Just Shoot Me. And trust me, you've seen Brian Posehn. He's just a huge nerd. <laughs> I mean, I mean his, nerdy, his nerdiness is huge, but he's also just a big guy. He's like 6'7". Yes. <laughs> Um, I still remember that my first memory of Brian Posehn was he was on one of the late night shows like Jim, Jimmy Kimmel or something, probably Jimmy Kimmel by the tone of this joke. But he told a joke about having a pet cat and like the cat like walked up and licked his wife while she was sitting on the toilet. Yes. And so yeah. he was like, hey, I don't even get to lick the lady's vajay. That was his <laughs> joke. And I, yeah. it, I've never forgot that punchline. Yeah, it's it's a great one. Hey, uh, I, I know that bit. He also has a bit about uh, how he was uh, driving a car and uh, he ran over a mattress and didn't realize it. 
and uh, um, these guys on the side of the road who, who were like in shape and like, you know, like they're bodybuilders or something started yelling at him. And he thought that they were jocks making fun of him. He's like, fuck you, jocks, whatever. But he like his car eventually like couldn't go any further because it was dragging a mattress. And the guys came out. He was like, guy, you're dragging a mattress. And they helped him. They lifted his car and like helped him like get all the stuff done. And then Brian Posehn's like, and they turn out to be really cool and nice guys. So maybe I'm not actually a nerd. Maybe I've just been dragging a mattress my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was just, it was such a well-constructed joke. Uh, I, I always liked that. That's He's, good. Uh, okay. Brad Falk, two questions. First one, if Ed Ogeron made his own gumbo, would he beat Bobby Flay? Fuck Bobby Flay, yeah. <laughs> well, we don't even need to discuss that. <laughs> that wins on two counts, Cajun versus a douchebag. Yeah, winner. <laughs> have you ever watched the show Beat Bobby Flay? Uh, yeah, I have. It's it's okay. Uh, oh, I just – I like it. I, I don't like celebrity chefs. Well, uh, yeah. I just can't do it. Like it's, it's indulging the worst in people. <laughs> I was I th- I feel like they capitalize on the uh, fuck Bobby Flay movement and they're just like yeah, well I, if people want to hate him let's just make a show where we just hate on him that is true and I you know and and now that people are coming around on celebrity chefs because of the whole uh, c- comedy bit that's become really popular of the you know what's wrong with uh, diners driving and guy guy yeah yeah guy for guy yeah Fieri. You know, what did Guy Fieri ever do but follow his dreams yeah that's a really good bit. <laughs> So yeah, we're we're trying to like rehabilitate uh, celebrity chefs, but no, they're all terrible people. Don't ever forget. <laughs> you know what? In Guy Fieri's defense, beyond that comedy bit, which I enjoyed, and it actually made me be yeah. like, you know, I do hate Guy Fieri for no good reason. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's it's great bit. You're like, man, I, he's actually right. <laughs> <laughs> but like the other uh, uh, earlier, well, I guess last year when there was horrible fires up in Northern California, like he just took his whole fucking team and set up shop. And cooked meals for people that were burned out of their houses and shit. And, and someone all, had the audacity to be like, what are you doing this for? What are you promoting? And he was just basically like, fuck you. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm helping all, people. Get the yeah, fuck also, out of here. Also, apparently, like, when he's not doing the show, he, he he's a normal person. Like, he doesn't yeah. spike up his hair. And and also, like, what I do like about his show, like, I actually will defend Divers, you know, Diners Driving and Dives, which is actually an enjoyable show. What I like about it is he points out that there's good food in places around the corner that you would never expect. Yeah, that was the whole idea of the show. The whole idea is like, hey, you know that shopping center by your house? It might have a great tapas place. Yeah. You know, don't turn your nose up at at it just because it's not New York City. It might be great. Like some great chefs can't afford an awesome, you know, place. Yeah. They might, you know, they might just be a really good cook. And they just have a family place like down the street. Give it a try. And I think that's a really good lesson in general. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Okay, Brad Falk again. Could this be the best D-line prospectively since 2007? Will they regress without Jenkins? Will the Texas Tech transfer be the the difference maker to make him elite? We already talked a little bit about it. Apparently, long, he concluded with first time, long time. I'm gonna hang up and listen, <laughs> which I appreciate. Okay, first off, awesome, good, well done. Um, but yeah, like uh, we just talked that Fahoka might be the the real deal. Um, I was not aware that they 
the, the staff was talking him up as much as they were. Um, if you look at – I'm trying to look at like the number of sacks. We've been – last three seasons in a row – hang on. Three seasons in a row, we've been third in the conference in sacks. And then before that, it was kind of we've been all over the place. Yeah, we, yeah, we haven't had, up and down. We, we haven't had a great – a truly great front line since 2011. You know, I'm just pulling out numbers. I'm not like trying to pick on, you know, I'm looking through time. Yeah, that was Sam Mark, uh, Sam Montgomery, Barkevius Mingo, Benny Logan, Kendrick Adams, uh, Michael Brockers. Yeah, Jeremiah Roscoe. That was a good group. Um, Anthony, uh, Anthony the Freak Johnson was in that. Yep. He was a freshman. Um, 2011 is a very high standard. Um, so we'll wait and see, but if the hype is true, you still need a guy who can – you need more than one sack guy. Also, we're going to rely on linebackers to get sacks. It, it matters. Do you count Chase on? I mean, he's technically a linebacker, but – Yeah, that's that weird role because yeah. he's playing the key role, which was the hybrid thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a 3-4, but he's going he's gonna to rush the quarterback. I mean, let's yeah, be honest. that's why he was signed. He's a defensive end, only he plays – you know, he's listed as a linebacker. Mm-hmm. Um, if you count him, yeah. Uh, it's very possible this to be our uh, our best defensive line since 2011, but let's let's wait and see. I, I'm not going to say it will be. That, that's that's Brad said. Happen. Brad said since 2007, he he threw no respect towards the 2000. No respect to 2011. You know, and just for that, never call this. No, <laughs> get a life, Brad. <laughs> we appreciate the questions. We actually do. Uh, <laughs> John D, who has the best milkshake? Well, that's such a huge question. Uh, well, which one brings all the boys to the yard? Oh, um, okay. Uh, um, uh, no, actually, I'm going to say I'm a big fan of the Maggie Moo's milkshake. Okay. Um, because, and I discussed this one time um, at a Maggie Moo's, um, which was around the corner, and I went there just way too many times because I am a gigantic fat ass. Um, the milk they use, they don't just put in whole milk like normal people. They actually have some melted ice cream in the milk. <laughs> so it's actually like this. more fatty than – it's basically ice cream and more ice cream. And it is the thickest, most delicious milkshake. So I'm a huge fan of the Maggie Moose. Um, if we're going like fast food, you know, if we're just kind of going from, you know, like what you can – Chick-fil-A It's a really good milkshake. I don't think Very I've ever had a milkshake there. Very underrated. Uh, I like Brahms. A oh, Brahms, of course, because that's an ice cream shop. They're they're, yeah. they're, they're ahead. Of I'm trying to talk about a place, you know, where they're making it out of a machine. But uh, if, from an ice cream place, Maggie Moo's fast food, I would check. Uh, I mean, the best milkshake is probably some like mom and pop shop somewhere. Oh, definitely, I agree. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the place we since we just had diver, you know, diners, drive-ins, and dives. The place by your house, probably a good ice cream plate. There's probably a good ice cream place. Check them out. Support your local business. It's true. I'm a big believer in that. Uh, all right. This is a good last question, and I don't know if you have seen this yet. So Hilliard Chestine, which I hope is his real name. Um, that's a hell of a name. Uh, asked if we can nerd out about Black Panther. And I don't – have you seen it? I have, believe okay. it or not. Have I you was, 
Uh, yeah, I did. I saw it on opening night. Um, actually, that's why we couldn't record last. Week. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because you, yeah, you ditched me to watch Black Panther, which I totally understand. Yeah, so I wasn't sure if you'd seen it because I know with kids it gets difficult sometimes for parents to see movies. I literally snuck out of work one day and just went early, and I didn't tell my wife, so she doesn't know I've seen it. Ah, that's great. Well, I, I was just, like, I was like, man, he either definitely saw this because he loves comic movies, or he yeah. definitely did not because he has kids. Yeah, no, I I I went at like three o'clock on a work day. Um, well, it's awesome. It's really good. I thought. I, I don't read comics, so I'll give you my like. It is. I'll give you my my, yeah, that's quick, fine. my quick and dirty review as a non-comic reader that likes the genre. Um, I thought it was awesome. It was way funnier than I anticipated. Um, I've never read a Black Panther comic ever, so I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know really what the story was. I didn't know what the background was. I knew that there was like tribal themes to it, just because I watched the preview and that was pretty easy to pick up on. Um, and to me, this this is like, I guess a shitty takeaway, but my biggest thing was like, when is Michael B. Jordan going to get like his franchise to be the man? Because he's, I think he's awesome. He's really good. Uh, he's really, really good. And it's kind of a shame that, I mean, he's been in some good movies, but like, he hasn't quite had his like, mega star moment yet. Maybe yeah, this it's, is it. Yeah, well, look, he's done three movies with Ryan Coogler, and I heard someone compare their... Their work together to Scorsese and De Niro, yeah. so that's, yeah, that's about as high praise you get. And that is—he's coming out of the gate pretty strong. Um, Marvel has the formula down. Like, can we be on? They're so good at making movies right now that they had me liking a character in the comic book comic books who's known as Man Ape. Which is probably the most racist character in the history of comic books, and that's some steep competition. <laughs> Which character is that? Uh, Mbaku. Okay. The guy, the Mountain King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, his character name is Man Ape, and he's like the coolest character in the film. <laughs> <laughs> he is pretty awesome. Like, I, I saw someone say this on Twitter. It's like. Marvel can get you to like Man Ape, and DC can't make a decent movie about Superman. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's amazing how good they are. Um, <clears throat> I really liked it. I think Thor Ragnarok was better. If I haven't I, seen uh, that I, yet, I've, I, I think, missed it. And I think Thor Ragnarok smuggled in a critique of colonialism <clears throat> that wasn't. It wasn't foregrounded; it was backgrounded. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of critique of well, just world history and colonialism in Thor Ragnarok, but you don't pay attention to it because it's a really funny movie that has a lot of stuff going on. <clears throat> Black Panther it, it has critiques of colonialism, and it's the driver of the plot. It's foregrounded. Absolutely. Um, I'm not saying it's bad, but I think I think I think Thor actually covered a lot of the same kind of ideas about how. I don't want to say the white man ruined everything, but definitely sins of the father kind of thing. I, I um, but what I did like about Black Panther is, um, without trying to give too much away of the movie because I know people haven't seen it, uh, there was a large portion of the movie in which Black Panther is sidelined. Yes, and I did not miss him because no. the supporting cast was so strong, and part of that is because Michael Michael Jordan um, as Killmonger is amazing. But really, this is a movie about the women. It um, is. Yeah, they are. Every one of them is so great. Um, and um, 
Nakia, I think, is the true hero of the movie. There's a, there was an article in The Atlantic about how Killmonger was right. No, he isn't. Um, Wakanda was arguing for – this is where I'm going to be kind of film critic-y. Uh, Wakanda was arguing for isolationism, which is bad. Killmonger was arguing for imperialism yes. only with them on top. It's just because he, he wanted to get rid of isolation and didn't make him right. He wanted to, he wanted to activate a foreign policy that's evil <laughs> and kill everybody and put, you know, he wanted to rule the earth. Nakia is the one, the entire movie who from the first time she shows up to the end of the movie is advocating. No, we can't be isolationists, but we need to reach out and help people. We yeah. have this technology and it's our moral responsibility. And it's kind of like this undercurrent. What I liked about the film, there was like this, not a plot line, but the theme is <clears throat> not, okay, Wakanda has done all these things to save themselves, but are they worth safe, worth saving? Mm-hmm. And Nakia's vision of Wakanda is worth saving. And I think that's what makes her a the most interesting character, but also the hero and the you know the vision of the film because it's not enough just to engage with everybody. You have to en- engage with them as partners, not as people that you're going to kill. <laughs> yes. Uh, but that said, I, I even if you don't want to get into that kind of nerdy history talk, and there is a lot of nerdy history talk, um, it's just a really fun movie, um, uh, and also. Representation matters. I, I think it's really cool that people who have never seen themselves on the screen get to see themselves as superheroes. Yeah. Like, I've had my superhero movies. I mean, every superhero movie, I get to see myself. And yeah. I think that's why it's important to have an African-American or just a straight African hero, you know, because, you, know, you know, little black boys and black girls can look up at the screen and see themselves. And like Shuri is smarter than Tony Stark. I think that's a really important, you know, and Nakia is the most moral character. And I think that stuff's important because it's inspiring. And also it's inspiring to me because, you know, even though it's not me on the screen, it's still great characters. And, you know, I can still relate to anyone. But I, I think the reason it's been such this runaway success is because it's that moment where a large portion of the population is like, oh, this superhero movie was made for me. And I think that's really cool. And people connect with that. And that's cool. But at the same time, they didn't exclude everybody else. Like yeah. you can go, you know, it's not a whole movie where it's just like whitey's awful. <laughs> There's a little bit of whitey awful. I mean, it is Africa. We have to deal with the legacy of slavery. But, you know, y- you identify with you identify with with T'Challa. You know, he he's the Black Panther. He's the hero of the film. You know, like you're with him. And I just think it's really it's just a really engaging great movie and it's it's got some weighty ideas behind it. I think it's getting a little bit too much credit for that. I think Thor, like I said, kind of covered those ideas already, so they got and got there first, but they didn't have that representation that Black Panther has cuz the hero of Thor you know, it's a white guy. Yeah. I mean, I saw an interview with Ryan Coogler, who the director, if anyone didn't know, but, uh, and he basically echoed what you just said, which was like, he's loved comic book movies and comic books since he was a kid. And he never, he had all the toys, but like he never saw himself in any of them. And so 
his idea of this movie was like, I want to make the movie that the kids will see themselves. You know, that like yeah. they, they can be that, that they are that. And, and I thought and that was a really cool, cool story. And, and that's all. And, and as I like to say, it's like there's nothing wrong with gatekeepers. What's bad is bad gatekeeping. Yeah. So as a gatekeeper, you're if you're a guy who's immersed in comics like, you know, like I am, my job is not to say – Oh well, you're not a true fan because you got into it to a movie. It's my job to say, "Hey, welcome to the club. This is what you should read. This is what you would like." Oh, you like this? How about this? Like, and like the Tennessee Coates uh, comic book run is—it's amazing. It, it was uh, the Black Panther run that he wrote. I mean, the guy comes off the National Book Award. He wins the MacArthur Genius Grant. He can do anything, and he writes a comic book. <laughs> I mean, that's how important of a character Black Panther is. Yeah. I, I thought, too, the film did a good job of sort of toying with the idea of shades of gray and humanity. You know, I it is, you're right, dealing with, like, imperialism and all of that stuff. But it is, it's not outright, like, just we hate white people. So if anyone is thinking that, it's really not. No. And it, uh, all of the characters sort of have their own interpersonal dilemmas dealing with I'm trying not to spoil the movie but just like yeah. I even like the villain of the movie who was played by Michael B Jordan you could sympathize with him you could see yeah. why he felt the way he did like he's not a terrible evil person he's sort of well he had he, a he's a lost to him. yeah he's a lost child and yes. and without you know, once again I'm trying not to give away but like there's a scene where T'Challa goes to the spirit plane and when he goes there, he sees all of the former kings. He sees his father. Yeah. He sees, you know, all the guidance this, that led to but, him, basically. But it's not just the guidance; it's this connection to a whole history going back to the dawn of man. Yeah, you know, he is. It's this interconnectedness that he feels. And then later, Killmonger goes to the you know, spirit plane, and he's back to being a little boy, and he only sees his father and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And he's cut off from the world, and it, there, and he doesn't have this legacy that goes back. He doesn't even go back to Africa. He's still stuck in Oakland, yeah. You know where he grew up as a little kid, and I think that he's you empathize, you, or at least sympathize with him. He's a tragic character. I mean, just because you can see where he's coming from, and that makes him a good villain. He's still villainous, yeah. <laughs> like. It doesn't justify his idea of you know he, he does terrible things in the movie and if you think about his plan for a second, it's truly awful. And it, honestly, he's explicitly an imperialist because at one point he says the sun will never set on the Wakandan Empire. Yeah, I mean that's he has literally made himself the colonizer, and I think that's a neat inversion where you know you put you know a black man in the role of the British. Yeah. And I thought that was really – if you're a history buff, that line really hit home because that was – you know, that was like, oh my god, I see what he's going for. Like, like, you know, you're like, ooh, bad, bad, bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just a – but at the same time, uh, like I said before, he's this – he's still this hurt kid. From the very beginning, and you can just see he's nursing these grudges. And he, he's there's nothing but pain, and he just lashes out at the world. Yep. 
and yeah, no, he's great. And but also like uh, what's his face? Uh, his claw. Uh, Andy Serkis is so much fun in this movie. Yeah, he's great. It was cool I mean, to see him finally. I know he's been in other stuff, but like he's normally a voice actor for a lot of animated characters. Yeah, like you so don't. It's ever cool to see his face. Or he's yeah, because it's always uh, motion capture. Because yes. I honestly like I know what he looks like, but I don't really know what he looks like. If that makes any sense. Yes. And I think he really got to enjoy his part in the movie. And you know, he's the main villain for a good portion of the movie. Yeah. So and he's God. He's so much fun. He's just a a glorious villain. <laughs> Yes. So yeah, go see it. It's a lot of. I, I still think Thor is a better movie, um, but I'm coming around to the fact that I think Thor's Ragnarok is the best movie of the MCU. Um, but this is up there. This is, um, and honestly, a year from now we might be talking about Black Panther as an Oscar nominee. I think it's going to be like The Dark Knight, where it crosses over into the mainstream and gives some. It, it might make comic book movies a little bit more reputable. Yeah. So I would love to see that because I, I don't like the snobbery against them. They are the the most popular entertainment. And look, there's good comic book movies and there's bad comic book movies. But yep. I think Logan, Logan getting a nomination this year kind of opens the door for Black Panther to maybe sneak in as a best picture next year. It won't win, but it would be a big step just to validate the genre, not just as a moneymaker, but actually as good movies. 